A reading from Genesis 31, um, I'll be reading verses 22 to 42, although James will talk to us about the whole chapter, I believe. Three days later, Laban discovered Jacob had left. So he took his relatives with him and he pursued Jacob for seven days. He caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and warned him, Be careful that you neither bless nor curse Jacob. So Laban overtook Jacob, and when Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead, Laban and his relatives set up camp there too. What have you done? Laban demanded of Jacob. You've deceived me, and you've carried away my daughters as if they were captives of war. Why did you run away secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you off with a celebration, complete with singing and tambourines and harps? Why, you didn't even allow me to kiss my daughters and my grandchildren goodbye. You've acted foolishly. I have the power to do you harm, but the God of your father told me last night, be careful that you neither bless nor curse Jacob. Now I understand that you've gone away because you longed desperately for your father's house. Yet, why did you steal my gods? Jacob replied to Laban, I left secretly because I was afraid. I thought you might take your daughters away from me by force. Whoever has taken your gods will be put to death. So in the presence of our relatives, identify whatever is yours and take it. Now, Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban entered Jacob's tent, and Leah's tent, and the tent of the two female servants. But he did not find the idols. Then he left Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the idols (coughs) and put them inside a camel saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban searched the whole tent, but didn't find them. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord. I can't stand up in your presence because I'm having my period. So he searched thoroughly, but didn't find the idols. Then Jacob became angry, and he argued with Laban. What did I do wrong, he demanded of Laban. What sin of mine prompted you to chase after me in hot pursuit? When you searched through all my goods, did you find anything that belonged to you? Set it here before my relatives and yours, and let them settle the dispute between the two of us. I've been with you for the past twenty years. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten from your flocks. Animals torn by wild beasts I've never brought to you. I always absorbed the loss myself. You always made me pay for every missing animal, whether it was taken by day or at night. I was consumed by scorching heat during the day and by piercing cold at night, and I went without sleep. This was my lot. For twenty years in your house, I worked like a slave. I worked like a slave for you, fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, but you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the one who Isaac fears, had not been with me, you would certainly have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw how I was oppressed, and how hard I worked, and he rebuked you last night.
All right, good morning, everyone. Okay, so, coming to the end of the Jacob and Laban story, all sorts of fun we've had, and this one is another intense chapter with lots going on. I'm trying, to, I'm going to try and get out of the way as much as I can and just let the, the text speak to us. There's a lot of it there, but it's really, really rich in its own right. So I'll try and frame it up for us as we go along, uh, so we can see what's happening clearly, but it is rich, and we're going to enjoy it together. Uh, before we get started, though, I thought it was appropriate, this being my last uh, sermon to make a Lord of the Rings reference. Uh, so there's a classic scene in Lord of the Rings, uh, in the Two Towers movie, uh, where after this massive battle's taken place, the victors go to confront the wizard Saruman. Saruman has been a master manipulator. Uh, he's controlled uh, Theoden King uh, from afar. He's used his words to poison all sorts of uh, people to get them to follow him, to bend them to his will. But now, weakened after the battle, uh, people are finally able to confront him and resist him. And, and he attempts to, to speak these words once more, to, to get back control, to regain the power that he's lost. Uh, but his time has come and his words now fall flat and empty. And we're going to see here in this passage, as we look at Laban, as we look at uh, what happens after the reversal of fortune that we talked about last week, that we're going to see him too, with his words, try to regain something of which he has lost, but as he's been defeated and overthrown, we'll see that his words are now empty, and more importantly, we'll see the way that Jacob responds to him in a way not too dissimilar to the way Gandalf and the rest of the crew do with Saruman as well. So it says here, picking up from verse 3, Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Okay, I think this is the second time that he's told him to go. I think that uh, we're going to see it just a little bit later uh, here that where Jacob recalls the first time he was told to go. But you might remember from last week that Jacob attempted to leave Laban. Joseph had been born to his favorite wife, Rachel, and he was hoping to make a move, but Laban was like, no, you're too valuable to me, I don't want to lose you. He comes up with this uh, deal that seems to be entirely in Laban's favor, but the Lord is with Jacob, and Jacob manages to get the upper hand, and there's been a complete role reversal. Laban was the one who was in control. Laban was the one who had the wealth. Laban was the one who Jacob had to ask for permission to take his wives and kids from, but now... Jacob is in the wealthy position. What has been Laban's is now Jacob's. And Jacob hears the call from God once more. And this time, he's in a position where he can leave. And that is a blank computer screen. All right. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. If Jacob is going to make this move away from Laban, and as we're going to see in a moment, he's going to do so without asking for Laban's permission this time, he needs his wives to be with him. Because he's not just taking himself, he's taking his wives, his children, his cattle, his flock, his camels, his wealth. This is a major enterprise, he can't do it by himself, he needs his wives with him, and this is his opening pitch. You've seen how hard I've worked, you've seen what your dad has done, but God has been with me through this. He continues, however, God has not allowed harm to him, not allowed your father to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young, and he said, then the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. 
So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. We're getting some extra detail about what happened with the deal last time round. It was to, in chapter 30 was sort of presented as this one unified occasion. Here we find out it was kind of a, a changing situation where Laban kept on trying to change the deal in order to favor himself. And Jacob's saying to his wives, like, you know what I've been through. You, you've seen the injustice that he's tried to put upon me. I've just kept working and working for him. He's cheated me again and again. He just keeps trying to change the deal. And then he tells them of this vision that he had a while ago. He said, in the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flocks were streaked, speckled or spotted. The angel of God said to me in that dream, Jacob. I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. For I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. God pointed out to Jacob in this vision that the results of you know the breeding that was going to take place and all that sort of stuff, there's going to be speckled, streaked, spotted goats. I think that this is what gave Jacob the idea for the deal that he had made with God that we looked at with Laban, sorry, that we looked at last chapter. He had confidence that God was going to be with him as a result of this dream. There was a promise from God that he saw the injustice that Jacob was experiencing, but he I'm with you and I think that that's what kicked off everything that we saw last week. And now he's appealing to his wives on this basis to say, look, God has been with me through all of this. Your father has meant injustice towards me, but God has triumphed. Again and again, he's putting Laban against God and saying, God wins and God is with me. And as it turns out, his wives actually don't need a lot of convincing. It says, then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share? in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? And essentially because they've married Jacob, who came from a different land. Not only has he sold us, but he has used what he paid for us. What was the, the price that he paid? It was 14 years of labor, right, from, from Jacob. Did, have they benefited from that? Has there been anything that they've received as a result of that? No, the, the father has taken that all for himself. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So whatever God has so do whatever God has told you. Uh, Rachel and Leah, you know, certainly they've been under Laban's spell at different points, certainly they've been under his authority. Leah has done some pretty disastrous things, deceitful things, at her father's command, but now is the time for them too to break away from Laban and all of his control. So it says, then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels and he drove all his livestock ahead of him along with all the goods that he had accumulated in Padam Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. And just, you know, grasp, this is a major endeavor. Like we're talking about, you know, getting all these flocks, all these people, like 850 kilometers back to the land of Canaan. This is a this is a massive undertaking. It's a huge project that he's going. It's going to be slow going. This is not something that you can just sort of rush. That'll be disastrous on all sorts of different fronts. So it's a it's a big job that he's got here in front of him. It says when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, though, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And this I'm going to pick up on another point here in a second. Patent for language. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. 
So he fled with all he had, crossed the river Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. Now, two things here real quick. One, we're going to see the significance of Rachel stealing the household gods, because that's going to lead to a very dramatic moment in just a short amount of time. But note here how it's translating in verse 20 there, moreover, Jacob deceived Laban. Now, what we've got in our English translations here is an attempt to translate a Hebrew idiom. All right, so an idiom is a phrase of speech that, that has a particular meaning, uh, even though it doesn't necessarily match up with the words that we would normally have. So when we say raining cats and dogs, we don't literally mean cats and dogs are falling. Right? We mean it's bucketing down, right? which is another idiom. Now, the thing with that is, is that when we translate from an idiom in one language to our language, you know, there's always a, a little bit of nuance there. It's a t- t- tough one to do. Literally what the phrase is, he stole the heart of Laban. Right? That's, that's, that's the literal word. And it's kind of got this idea of eluding his understanding. The heart in the, in the ancient mind was kind of the place of understanding and, and reasoning even. And so to steal the heart of someone is to, is to elude their understanding or avoid their knowledge. Which I think is actually a little bit of a different idea from the idea of deception as we typically think of it today. It's more like making sure that they don't know something as opposed to actively deceiving, which for us has this sort of sense of dishonesty or lying and that sort of thing. And I think that because deception is such an important idea in the Jacob story, when they translate it here as deceiving, you can kind of get the idea of, oh, Jacob's up to his old tricks, but I don't think that's what's happening. We've seen a lot of growth in Jacob. Jacob, remember last chapter, we saw him go to Laban and ask for permission, and he was rejected by him. He he has not been attempting to deceive Laban in what he's been doing. He's, He's been working within the deal that they made. And in a moment, he's even going to appeal to his integrity uh, to sort of, you know, to fire back at Laban in the way that he has mistreated him. So I really actually like the way that the King James uh, translates this. He said, and Jacob stole away unknown to Laban, the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. I think that's a better idea here, rather than just sort of making it sound as though, oh, Jacob hasn't really changed, he's still the deceiver. I don't, I don't think that's the best way to render it, okay? But like I said, it's an idiom, it's tricky. But here he goes. He's stealing away, unknown from Laban, and that kind of sets up this, uh, you know, dramatic chase scene. Although it's more like a chase scene, less the Fast and the Furious, and more like, you know, No Country for Old Men, where it's like a really slow chase as they're moving across a long space. It says, On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So again, this is the, the seventh day that God shows up. It's, it's been a long chase. They're driving hard. Think, you know, again, like an old Clint Eastwood West, you know, Western or something like that, where they're, they're, they're trying to track them down across the plains. They know where they're going. It's just a matter of when are we going to catch up with them? And right before that he's going to confront him, God says, don't speak either good or bad to him, which is another idiom, which essentially is not saying don't talk to him whatsoever. What he's saying is don't do anything bad against him. Okay, God shows up again for Jacob in a very real and powerful way. Now Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too. Alright, so we, we know each other, this isn't open warfare, we've kind of caught you, we're gonna have a conversation about what's happening. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Now, I think here is where we really see fully what's kind of been apparent in some form or another for some time. And that is that Laban is actually one of the, I kind of want to say greatest, but really what I mean is worst, villains in all of Scripture. Because the thing about Laban is, is that he manages to make it seem all so reasonable and manages to put himself in the place of the wounded father, the hurt grandfather, the one who's been wronged, and it is a complete and utter lie and deception. Laban is one of the worst villains because he is a manipulator, and to put it in contemporary language, abuser of those around him. That's what he does. And by recognizing what he is, we're able to think more clearly about how we respond to similar people that we might come across. So I'm going to spend some time here just working through his words, just to pull it apart, because it's only by working through it slowly, because he weaves it together so powerfully, that if you just sort of let it hit you, you're like, oh, I guess Laban, you know, tough break for him. But that's not it at all. So he says, What have you done? You've deceived me. Who... This is coming from the guy who literally sent Leah in instead of Rachel. Oh, you deceived me. And you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. What are you talking about? They went with him willingly to get away from you. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? There was no deception. He didn't lie. He just left because you wouldn't let him leave completely unjustly because you wanted him for your own benefit. Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? Dude, you're literally the guy that wouldn't let him leave. There wasn't going to be a party. That was never going to happen. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. True. We didn't. But when we you know, dismantle all those other things, that doesn't actually seem like that big a deal now, does it? In fact, what concern have you really had for them? You've been way more concerned about getting stuff for yourself. You haven't wanted to see your grandchildren grow in wealth and blessing. You were trying to keep their dad poor so you could have more stuff. You've done a foolish thing. He's trying to make him feel stupid and little. I have the power to harm you. Okay, so think about that. He's just tried to frame everything Jacob has done as wrong. And now... He's saying, you know, I, but, but I am powerful. I, I have these things that I could do. Again, not true. We've seen fortune, because of God's favor, has gone entirely with Jacob. Laban is no longer what he once was. Jacob is now in a much better position to deal with him. But Laban is still holding on to the idea of, I have the power to harm you. But last night... The God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I could harm you, because how powerful I am, but for God's words. 
Now, you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house. And I can kind of understand why you'd want to do this. Okay? And then he tries to cut in with this really strong point. After all the deception, all the manipulation. But why did you steal my gods? Alright, this is what I mean by him being a manipulative abuser. He is trying to reframe everything that's happened and then he's trying to nail Jacob on this one thing where he really can have a chance of saying, you've done me wrong. Because if I can find those, if I can find those idols, if I can find those household gods, that's theft, that's proven. All my other, the rest of my story, okay, gets a lot more believable if I can show, see, you're the dishonest one, you thief. You've acted so foolishly, but you treated me so unkindly, and you're a thief on top of it all. But Jacob is now able to speak much more plainly and, unlike in his early years, when he was the one who was the betrayer and the deceiver himself, Jacob now feels that he can stand on his own integrity. He makes an appeal that 20 years ago would have seemed completely ludicrous that Jacob could get there and say, I have acted with honesty and integrity. He did the same thing in chapter 30. You can inspect my flocks. You can see if I've taken any of your sheep. We'll count them as yours if you find anything that looks like yours. And now he again stands on that. He says, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. A pretty reasonable fear, as it turns out, because he literally just said, I would have done that except for God. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. It's a dramatic moment. And some of you might be wondering, why did Rachel do this? Now, remember, we're still 400 years away from the Mosaic Law. And it's in the Mosaic Law where we really get this strong sense of God saying to his people, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And also this strong sense of you shall not worship any other gods. There's kind of a growing understanding for the people there that, oh, there is only one God, the God of Israel. That, that's an understanding that in their theology really comes much later. So for Rachel, it's entirely reasonable that she could have been thinking, there's the God of my husband Jacob, who's been blessing him and who's been with him, but she's not yet understood that that means that these other gods are not real. And so... Possibly she's taking them. Remember, she still wants to get pregnant. She might think that they're going to aid her in fertility or something like that. So it's, it's understandable, even though it's not good theology, you can sort of understand why she might have been thinking that at this point in biblical history. But it's a dramatic moment nonetheless, right? Because we're going to have a search. But the funny thing is, as it goes along, it actually starts to get more and more comical, right? Because we've got Laban, this apparently oh-so-powerful person that could harm Jacob, if not for the words of God, now being forced to go tent to tent, trying to find evidence to prove his claim that Jacob really is a thief. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and to the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. You can imagine him getting frustrated as he's searching. They wouldn't have been big things. He would have had to have been pulling things apart, looking for them, all that sort of stuff. And after coming out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods, as we know, and put them inside her camel's saddle 
and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. And again, I think it's meant to be funny. This idea that this, again, this oh-so-powerful man who's manipulated these lives of, the lives of these women who had the power to sell them to whoever he thought he could profit from the most is now defeated in this moment by the regular cycle of a woman's body and he is apparently powerless to do anything about it. It's meant to make Laban look more and more foolish and weak because we've seen him go from being the powerful manipulator in control of all of these people's lives to now being at the mercy of Rachel's claim that it's her time of the month. It's meant to be funny because it's meant to show how far Laban has fallen. And it's at this point, seeing all this play out in front of him, that Jacob is finally able to really speak his mind to Laban. Says Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime? He asked Laban. Remember, he's just searched. Laban, Laban's pinned everything on why have you stolen my household gods? What is my crime? How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives, yours and mine, and let them judge between the two of us. Laban's entire case has crumpled before him. Jacob is essentially saying, you've made all these claims against me. You've searched everything that you possibly could. Bring me your evidence and show me one justification for what it is that you have done. I've been with you for 20 years now, and here we get the full extent of what life under Laban has looked like for Jacob. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried nor have I eaten rams from your flock. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. Typically, he didn't have to do that. Under the law, as a shepherd, if, if an animal was destroyed by a wild animal, that wasn't the shepherd's job. That was meant to be the loss of the owner. But Jacob's like, I took that loss on myself. I did not pass it on to you. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen, day or night. Again, not the law at the time. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years as I was in your household. I worked for you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. He is furious. Okay, don't underestimate the way it says there at the start that it's angry. Because sometimes when we do this, we read the Bible, we forget to pack that emotion into our reading, right? He is letting him have it. Jacob was angry and took him to task. 20 years I've worked for you, old man. You've changed my wages 10 times. I've suffered in the heat. I've suffered in the cold. I've borne your wrong. Everything that you have done against me, I've been the one that has paid the price. Where is your evidence? You've come after me. What is it that you point to that justifies anything you have done? This is where Jacob's at. He is rightly furious. He is pouring out just words against Laban here. He is speaking truth. The former deceiver is now the one speaking truth 
with God on his side against Laban and all that he's done to him. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed, the fear of Isaac being the fear of possible repercussion as to what Isaac might do to Laban if he mistreated him. You would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Laban tried to take God's words, right? He tried to take God's words and use them against Jacob by saying, I would harm you if not for God's words. And Jacob's like, do you not see God rebuked you in that moment because of all the wrong that you have done? Laban is a manipulative abuser trying to control the people's lives around him with deception and reframing things and making them feel small and little. And now Jacob says, enough. My integrity is without question. I have served you without question. You have got nothing to stand on and God is with me. And Laban answered in really the only way that he possibly could. And this is what I mean. Where he, he, this, is, this is like Saruman in his tower, just trying to convince everyone that he's still powerful, that he still has some place to go to, but his words fall empty and flat. Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. In what planet is that true? It's unequivocally not Yours. They are now Jacob's wives. They are Jacob's children. It is Jacob's wealth. This is what God has done. All that Laban can do is throw out one last lie. It's almost like the dig. You know, as you're walking away trying to score one more point when you know that you've lost. You've got nothing. All you can do now is seek to hurt and try and reframe that lie. Yeah, what can I do? about these daughters of mine, or about the children they have born. Come now, let's make a covenant between you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. Do you see what he's doing? Jacob's just blasted him, judged him entirely rightly, and Laban's like, no, it's all mine, but what can I do? So, let's, let's make a covenant. Like... Again, this is Laban's last-ditch attempt to find a way to not be openly at war with Jacob because it's pretty clear who would win that battle. But what's amazing, what's breathtaking, what shows the real growth of Jacob, I think, through all of this, is that as he has been shown grace and mercy by God, after he's poured out this judgment upon Laban, And as Laban brings this ridiculous request for a covenant of peace between them, Jacob says, okay. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took some stones and piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. He ate with him. Laban called it Yagah and Jacob called it Galid. It means the same thing in both ones. Laban said, the heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it's called Galid, witness. It was also called Mizpah because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me and when we are away from each other. So if you ill-treat my daughters, 
or if you take any wives, wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. You're the one that gave him more wives to start with. He has multiple wives because of you. The slave girls was your the, the whole thing. He, the, the, like him mistreat his your daughters. You're the one that was trying to control their lives. But Jacob goes up and along with it is Laban continues. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is the pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Laban, I've got something to tell you. He has judged between you. And this is, this is, this is it. This is, this is the manipulative abuser now without his power, desperately trying to frame things in terms of, yes, we are, we are still equals and we'll let God decide who's really right. That decision's been made. But we will have peace between them. Because Jacob took their oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and he invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. It, like when, when you really right, work through it slowly, right, and see the full extent of what Laban has done, Jacob's decision here to let it go, to be at peace with Laban, to let this boundary marker serve as a dividing line between them, is is actually pretty breathtaking, right? Because God is with him, which could have easily led, right, to this sense of, I will now bring justice upon Laban for all that he's done against me. It, it could have led to this sort of sense of, he is now the one who will, you know, dominate the situation. But instead he's content to say, we will have a market, there will be a boundary between us. We, we are done. But I will walk away. I'm not going to seek justice for the wrongs you've done against me. And it's entirely in line with the grace and mercy that God has shown to him, right? Like, think about this. How mindful do you think Jacob must have been that as he's leaving Laban and the entire situation that he's dealt with there, that he is now having to go back and see Esau, his brother, with the knowledge of everything that he'd done to him? Jacob is now a man who understands the grace and mercy because he knows he does not deserve it. We're going to see, as well, I, I won't be here, but you guys will see when we come back to Genesis the way he, he, he is doing everything he can to, to honor Esau, to, to say, to communicate to him, I want peace. And, and that's the same approach that he's taking here with Laban. He knows that Laban has done him wrong, but he's seeking peace as he's on his way to Esau to seek peace with the brother that he has wronged. It's a profound understanding of the gracious and mercy, merciful God that has been with him. And, and the thing is that this is for us today as Christians something that we can have an even more profound understanding of because we understand that Jesus Christ has paid the price for all sins, both those committed 
by us and the ones done against us. Because at one point or another, we've probably all been Jacob or Laban. We've either been the victim, hurt and abused by those around us, or we have been, in our selfishness and our foolishness, the one who has been hurting and trying to control others and and doing things that we are not proud of. And the beauty of the cross is that his mercy extends to us all. There is forgiveness for Laban every bit as much as there is a forgiveness for Jacob. For you here this morning, there is forgiveness for you every bit as much as the abuser as there is comfort for you if you've been abused. There is forgiveness for the manipulated just as much as there is hope for the one who's been manipulated. And so, the, and, and that, that's how we can get to this point where what Jacob does here, where he seeks peace with his former enemy, becomes something that's possible to us when we really understand the fullness of the cross and what that means for us. Look at Jesus' words here in Matthew 5. Jesus said, you've heard it, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing any more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To follow Jacob's steps in this passage is to follow Jesus' command here in this one. Where I recognize that the call that we have with our enemies today, those who have wronged us horribly, and Laban was the worst, right? Like, This is not a minor offense. This is not just a little family squabble. This is 20 years of manipulative, controlling abuse. But Jacob is able to say, no, we're going to put some boundaries in place. We're going to make sure that we are protected from from your manipulation. But I'm not going to pursue justice. I'm not going to turn into the judge. I'm not going to look to get vengeance upon you. Rather, we're going to be at peace. We're going to make a covenant. And we're going to live in a way that gives honor to the God that's shown grace and mercy to me. Because how else does this make sense, right? Love your enemies? That's insane! It's only through the cross of Christ when we see that that's exactly what Jesus has done when they stood in rebellion against him, that he came in to sacrificially love and give his own life in order there could be peace between sinners like us and a holy God. And I think that this passage is showing to us that there is indeed a different way for us to live. And I'm going to pray that we'd be able to do that now. Father God, your grace and mercy given to us is mind-blowing. We acknowledge and confess that we don't deserve it. We understand that we have sinned. We understand that we've hurt people. We understand that we've done wrong things. And we also confess, Lord, that we know that we've been hurt and that others have wronged us. We confess, Father, the temptation 
to be willing to ask for forgiveness and mercy on ourselves, but then turn around and judge others who have wronged us. And we ask, Father, you would help us to rise past this and instead to follow the example that you set for us. That we might love our enemies. That we might put boundaries up where necessary, but Lord, that we would seek to make peace with them because you, through your work, through the work of your Son on the cross, has made peace with sinners and enemies like us. And we pray, Father, that we might graciously and mercifully extend that peace to others also in order that we might walk as your children, that we might be as Jacob is in this passage, walking in integrity, loving you, knowing you are with us, and making peace instead of seeking vengeance. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.